let's do it. Welcome back to A Dark Tale. This is episode seven. How you doing, James? I'm pretty good, Joe. How are you? Good. Good to be doing this again. Yeah. Tonight, we have a special one. Today, we're telling the uh, the incredible story of Alyssa Turney. We're going to discuss the volatile relationship between her father and the rest of the family, as we hear first from her younger sister, Sarah. This is our first interview, believe it or not. We did it. Yeah. Another milestone. We're going to play you uh, a phone call. I should mention that that audio is a little bit choppy, but you're going to hear the overall gist of it. Yeah. Some parts kind of cut in and out, but yeah, we attribute that to being cross-country. She so. um, cuts in and out in the beginning of her first answer in various words. You can hear the answer still. I think it's pretty clear for the most part, but it clears up after a minute or so. So just hang in there. We're doing what we can. I think we cut in out in and out a little too. We had we had a push to talk button and we didn't always push yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, so you may hear some choppiness, but again, it was right. our first time. First interview and uh we really appreciate Sarah for joining us. Yeah, thank you it. again, Sarah. So, just a little bit of brief background before we go into the audio here. Alyssa went missing in May of 2001 from Phoenix, Arizona. Now, her father, for some reason, took her out of school on the final day, which was a short day to begin with. But for whatever reason, he picked her up from school early, and that was the last anybody ever saw her. And this is now 18 years, and nobody's heard a thing from her other than one phone call and one note in the beginning of the um, ordeal. So with that, I think we're going to let pretty much Sarah take it away, and she's going to lay out most of it for you guys. So here's Sarah. Quake, you've been talking to Joe through the email. I'm James. Uh, we haven't actually uh, inter- I haven't introduced myself yet, so really nice talking to you. Thank you for doing this with us. Sarah, this really means a lot to us. I appreciate you doing this. This is Joe, by the way. Of course. No, thank you. It's just really wonderful to have people that care and want to spread the message. Well, for anybody who's listening that may not be familiar with the case, can you give us a little bit of background of who Alyssa was, what she was like, and maybe a little bit of the story surrounding your sister? Yeah, of course. Um, So Alyssa was my big sister. She's four years older than me. And she was, I mean, just the coolest. Um, To be honest, we fought really mean to me a lot of the time um but it was very much you know normal was like pulling hair and pushing over clothes and all those types of fights um but she was just so cool to me you know we're looking at you know the year 2000 late 90s so she wore her big like janko jeans and she had bracelets all up her arm with care bear shirts she was really really sweet but also kind of alternative um so she was this really cool blend of strong and compassionate just loved her so much But yeah, I mean, so when she went missing, I was 12 and she was 17. It was the last day of her um, junior year in high school. It was my last day of seventh grade. And essentially, um, my dad, you know, picked me up from a friend's house and said that Alyssa wasn't answering her phone. And I came home and um, I found the note on her dresser as well as her cell phone. And it said that she was running away. You know, I was a kid. I didn't really think much of it, to be honest. I thought that she'd be back. I thought that she was probably at a friend's house, that she was mad at my dad. You know, they didn't have the greatest relationship. And then eventually she didn't come back. 
Um, right. And yeah, I mean, it just was a really crazy ride. And then my got arrested. They reopened the case and they decided that my father was the number one suspect. And they came into his home looking for evidence of Alyssa. And instead they found the largest pipe bomb bust in Phoenix history. So at this point I was 19. He went to prison and um, I still believed that Alyssa just ran away. I didn't think that he had anything to do with it until the police and um, ABC 2020 gave me some new facts. And then I believed it. And I went to the police and I said, hey, I see what you see. I think my dad did it. Um, How can I help you? And we partnered together to talk to my dad. And they said that he was going to get prosecuted when he got out of prison. (sighs) Sorry, I'm like running out of breath. Um, No, no, no. Take your time. We have all the time in the world. (laughs) But yeah, um, the police told me that they what they wanted to do was wait for my father to get out of prison. So that way that they wouldn't combine his sentences. They his 10-year sentence for the bombs. And then the day that he was released, um, they wanted to arrest him for Alyssa. A few days before my father got out of prison, um, the detectives were reassigned. And I didn't think much of it. I thought, you know, like the, the case was done. Um, we had our prosecution. You know, what more was there to investigate? So it didn't really raise any red flags. Um, but then, of course, when he was released from prison, he um, wasn't rearrested for Alyssa's case. And eventually they sat me down and they said, hey, gonna we're away. not going to arrest him. We need a body. And your best chance for any type of exposure is to um, go to the media, get media attention, and then maybe we can get some resources into reopening this case. Hmm. And then that was the last they uh, ever tried to help, right? Just kind of leaving you with that advice. In an and official just, sense. And then just kind of sending you out into the ether. Yeah, I mean, of course, I've been in contact with them lately and, or, you know, since then. And if there are any genuine leads, they, they will follow up on them, or at least they say they will, um, as far as what they've actually done. It's really hard to tell. Um, but even just a few days ago, I got an email from one of the detectives. I was requesting records. And he said, hey, like, you know, because of all the media attention you've gotten, you could be putting this case in jeopardy. Wow. So initially they tell you to get media traction and now they're saying this is a, this is hurting your cause. Now it's too much. Yeah. I mean, of course I was stunned and I reminded them that they did that a long time ago when they released documents, you know, to other media sources and to ABC 2020. And I said, to be honest with you, I feel like I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Well, let's tell the story a little bit. Let's jump backwards. And um, can you describe to us what your childhood was like with Alyssa, also with your dad, the three of you together, living together. How was that relationship? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was, you know, pretty normal, to be honest. Uh, we grew up, you know, not with a ton of money. So we spent a lot of time playing board games and riding our bikes up to the store. And um, I think it just kind of forced us to be together a little bit more because there was not much to do outside of sitting in the house. Um, but it, it seemed normal. My dad helped Alyssa with homework. He seemed he seemed definitely, you know, more interested in Alyssa's welfare than mine. But he had always said that that was because I made great decisions and Alyssa didn't make great decisions, even though I was four years younger and honestly not making great decisions. Um, so I feel like the wool was really pulled over my eyes as a child. I think that I was really led to believe that everything was fine. Um, but then, of course, when I got older, I realized that everything was not fine and it was really, really abnormal. I mean, he was obsessed with Alyssa. And I don't think that I'm over-exaggerating that. He very much treated, treated her and still speaks about her as if she's some type of ex-girlfriend, just in a really mean, demeaning type of way. Yeah, the, listening to the, the recordings of him, it's, it's interesting the way he speaks about the whole situation. And it, it just, 
raises a lot of questions. Even on YouTube, everybody hears the tone of voice in which he speaks. And it's, it's short. It's demeaning. It's not legally, you know, it's not anything you can take legal action on. You can't take a legal action on a tone of voice, but it makes you feel a certain way. But yeah, I mean, it, it just paints the picture of how he sees her and how he always saw her. And that was as, you know, unfortunately, a sexual object. You know, we, we later found out, of course, that dozens of people essentially came forward and spoke about Alyssa being sexually abused by our father, which, of course, I didn't know either. Right. And he throws that in my face. You know, he says, you didn't see anything. Just rely on that. Um, and, and it's insane. I mean, again, I think that my entire childhood was set up so that, you know, if someone were which they visited our home several times and they would come in and I would say everything was great. I love my dad. You know, he let me do whatever I wanted. I could eat candy and get fast food whenever and never go to school, stay up as late as I want, have all my friends over, you know, that translated into getting into trouble and not getting in trouble for it. You know, even I got arrested for shoplifting and nothing ever happened. Wow. So when these wow. organizations come into the home, you know, I, I paint over the, because that's genuinely how I felt. But then, of course, when they spoke to Alyssa, they get a different picture. Right, of course. And you mentioned about how you felt everything was normal and, and in hindsight, everything obviously feels different. Um, was, was there anything else that feels different about that time? Anything that he said that, like, maybe jokes that you can tell they weren't jokes or things like that? I mean, to be honest, absolutely everything. Um, just from the way that he would like, you know, take care of us when we were sick to the way that, um, I, you know, I realized that, um, my father was drugging me. I mean, not what's hard is what he would do is every, um, every time I was upset or, you know, every year before school would start heavy dosages of drugs. So what that does is make me think back and, and wonder what was happening from what I wasn't seeing, you know, was he crushing these up and putting them in our food? Like it, it's just a sure. very strange thing to give, really strong drugs to small children. I mean, it started when I was like six, I would take a triazolam, which is a very potent drug. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think just everything, the way that he painted her, especially the way that he said that she was incompetent, anything in life, you know, she wasn't smart enough to be able to go out with her friends and not die from having a beer. He would literally instill this fear in me and say, you don't understand, Sarah, if Alyssa drinks, what's going to happen is she'll lay on her back throw up and she'll, you know, die essentially from not being smart enough to roll over or just, you know, being incapacitated, just things that are, you don't tell a younger sibling, like you don't need to go into that much detail. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. Everything looks different. Yeah, that stuck out to me from the recording where he tells you that you need to trust your own eyes. I'm not sure how you tell that to a child when you as an adult are perfectly aware that people's perspective is uh, from that age is faulty people don't remember everything so he's saying that we should definitely trust the person who didn't see everything or can't remember everything that's that's sketchy that's genuinely sketchy yeah absolutely you know and then i re rebuttal him and i say well what about my brothers who saw everything i mean i think it all goes back to him trying to paint the picture that she could have gotten in a car with some guy and never came back that she was stupid enough to do A, B, and C and obviously get yeah, herself calling killed. calling her stupid. That seems so strange to well, me. Well, and I think, you know, of course, growing up, it was also a way of kind of justifying how controlling he was over her. You know, of course, we had camera in the living room vent. We had cameras on the outside of the house. He would conduct surveillance on her when she was at her job at Jack. And I think that him 
saying that she's so stupid and not able to make any of these good decisions for herself is his way of justifying that. You know, look at my daughter. Of course, she's ADD. She trusts people too much. She's always getting into trouble. So that's why I need to sit outside of her work and watch her. It's just gross. It is. And that specific video of Alyssa working at Jack in the Box, I I noticed at the end Alyssa confronts him, but she kind of seems almost used to the fact that he's he's always watching her. Yeah, defensive. Is, was that the case? Now that I look at it, yeah, I think so, absolutely. And she's defending him, you know? She's saying, well, that's my dad. He's allowed to tape. And I think that it shows how torn she was because I think that she loved our father very, very much. I saw take care of him in the ways that she, you know, that he described. So I think that she was torn. She knew that he was doing what he was doing, but loved him anyway. I mean, to be honest, she didn't have a lot of other choices. Her biological father wasn't in the picture. Our mother wasn't in the picture. She needed to take care of me. So I think that she loved him and was trying to make the best of a really bad situation. That is heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. And it's so much more clear the way you, you present it. Now, did Alyssa ever mention moving or running away or getting out in in some form or another to where Michael could use that against her? No, I mean, not that I can remember. I feel like she might have said um, a few words in anger, like, I'm going to run away someday or talked about some type of apartment that she wanted to get in the future, but nothing like concrete, nothing like every day she was saying she was going to run away to California or every day she was trying to get out of the house. Um, it was just kind of those random things that teenagers say. Understandable. I know I did the yeah, same. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I know I, I did the same thing. I think I still do sometimes. <laughs> So do I. I, I mean, I threatened to run away all the time. And I, I mean, I certainly did it as a teenager. Um, I mean, I ran away to my boyfriend's house for almost a month. He had to come get me with the police. Now, that's curious because how much time did your dad spend looking for Alyssa the day after the day she was presumed missing? Um, I mean, it appeared that he was looking for her every day. He had flyers on the dashboard of his truck. He would talk to every person he ever encountered about her. So to the family, it looked like he was really, really looking for her. But of course, now that I'm going through the records for myself and, you know, now that I know better, um, we all know that he wasn't. So as we listen to that interview, the main things that stick out to me is just how much Michael tried to control Sarah's, her narrative throughout her life. She, she mentioned, mentions him drugging her, which is insane. Insane, exactly. Um, he keeps her foggy when she's a kid. Most of her life. I mean, most of the, uh, probably the entire time that she's living with him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a scary, scary thing to think about two defenseless girls being in this guy's total control because uh, yeah. there's no mistaking that he controlled Alyssa as well. I yeah. mean, and he was more, he was more geared towards Alyssa mm -hmm. as Sarah sent, mentioned. Yeah. And meanwhile, he was kind of thinking two steps ahead. If... If if, if everything is as it seems, which I mean, I'm not going to hide my bias here, really. But like, it, it, that's that's what fascinates me is that he's such a controlling person from 
the looks of it. And he was playing the long con. Yeah, right. You know? It's it's when I mean he's covering his tracks back then. He so knew exactly I what think to we do. were talking about this before you um, before you hit record. We were mentioning the fact that he would use these drugs and these you know all these different methods and the cameras in the house and following Alyssa and all this and he would cloud Sarah's judgment in the midst of all of it and now almost 20 years later she's asking him for straight up answers and he's telling her you know what you saw you were there exactly use what you use your own judgment that's and her judgment is totally skewed yeah from childhood that's he knowingly relies on that it, 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 it's you 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 form an unreliable narrator and then you try to go and then you use that as proof when the question of a lifetime hits you right it's and, some sort of twisted reverse psychology yeah, almost yeah. and as she describes it it's not even really the fact that it, it's the fact that he could have done these things and just could, probably gotten away with it or carried on or or yeah but it, it's the fact that when confronted with basic questions that he gets defensive and he doubles down and i mean he's, he's clearly shown himself capable of violence with the pipe bombs and he was he was planning that yeah so and the weirdest thing i don't think we really touched out. on on the the whole pipe bomb incident i mean he was planning he had a whole manifesto written about how he was going to blow up this union this electrical union that he once worked with and yeah. we didn't discuss that a lot in the in the we, interviews no, but we didn't get into too much detail but, that, but this that is kind of what blew up the case again because he right. was he was doing that and um he had he had filed a missing missing persons report years prior but uh it wasn't until he was found doing this crazy shit well i think what sarah mentioned was that he was uh they you know they had evidence geared up to yeah. make an arrest toward in in Alyssa's case they went to serve a warrant on him in terms of Alyssa's case they found this cache of weapons and homemade bombs and when he was arrested out on the street I think he had like a gun or two guns on him yeah. and like a backup magazine or two. Yeah, she's just said, checking the yeah, mail. She by mentioned the way. too. She was, they were trying to combine sentences even. Yeah, but, but it was nothing. It wasn't sticking like that. Yeah, yeah. The, the investigators got relocated or reassigned, and then the uh, case was pretty much fell on deaf ears at that point. Mm. What a surprise! It's it seems when there's a stalemate against a form of the system. Uh, it tends to, it tends to favor the system or those who represent it was he working at that time no so that's the thing is that he's been on disability since the late 90s um so he didn't work for you know quite a few years before Alyssa left so he had a a lot of free time he had a lot of free time i was about to say the yeah. same thing yeah yeah absolutely if, in fact, Michael did have a hand in Alyssa's disappearance, is there anyone that he could have reached out to that, oddly enough, would have helped him? Yeah, I believe that there were several family members that he could have reached out to. Um, really? Whether or not he had other, 
uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, there's a few uncles that I think that it's possible. Um, but now that for myself, I, I don't know. And I think that's what's so hard. Um, absolutely. I mean, he had access to a property up north that was owned by our family. Um, and we know that he had two duplicate trucks. So to me, I feel like that might be some type of indication that he could have swapped trucks at, so, at some point with another person. I recently listened to your, your interview on your own podcast, and didn't he try to explain away the, the two trucks? Um, I'm trying to think. I don't know if he ever gave me like a solid explanation. I feel like he just blew it off, um, but I could be wrong. It's so hard. I feel like I've never gotten a definite answer from him on anything. I can understand that. He's very manipulative from the conversations I've listened to. Oh, manipulative. I mean, and that's the theme of all these. Those every person just says he's this master manipulator and he was well liked, which is why I go on ABC 2020 and say, I can't believe my dad would did this. Everybody thinks he's innocent because at that time, everybody did. Not to mention he was a for he was former police officer, correct? Yes, he was. Absolutely. From 1970 to 1974. And he was well respected in that career? Um, you know, to be honest, I haven't spoken with anyone that worked with him or found any records to indicate what liked. Um, his, his ex-wife did say that he quit because of the politics of it all. So I would imagine that he probably wasn't the most popular. Sure. I've heard many claims from many similar people, and it's usually uh, the ones with the bigger egos who, th who think that they're, they, they know best. They're under attack. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or, the, or something attacks them personally. Oh, absolutely. I mean, his ego is huge. We know this. Now, how, do your, how did the uh, immediate family feel about your dad after he was sentenced to prison for the, uh, the pipe bomb bust? Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure that all the pipe bombs phased us as much as what happened to Alyssa. Of course, it's, it's horrible what he did and his plan to kill all those people. But for us, you know, it, it was a big mixture of everything. And at this point, I think we were just realizing that he killed our sister. Um, so when he was sentenced, we were like, dang, he really could be this horrible, horrible guy that everyone says he was. Um, so it was this really, really crazy mixture of feelings. And all my brothers realized it before I did. I was the last one that kept defending him and kept trying to work for him uh, and the last one to come around. I never would have guessed that the way you advocate for your sister these days. I mean, it's, it's incredible what you do. What actually did bring that change uh, in your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was time and the new information I got from me, which was that he took her out of school early that day. I also saw my brothers on there um, saying that she was being sexually abused. You know, the police had told me these things before, but I didn't trust them because my father told me not to. And I believed them, you know, they, they took away my dad. They ruined my life in my eyes at that point. I was 19 years old. And then when ABC right. 2020 came on and I heard it again, and then I heard my brother say it, and then I read all the comments a thousand times, and of course no one was on my dad's side. Um, and then after time passed, you know, I, I confronted him and I said, hey, like, this doesn't look right. What is going on? Like, I'm starting to believe what people are saying. And he didn't say, you know, 
no, sweetie, of course I didn't do it. How could you think that? He really just blew it off. Um, and I believe That's I tried again and he blew me off again. And then I was like, wow, I think that this is really what's going on. So at this point, is there any legal backing that you're that you're seeking or do you have anybody that's working on the case in a legal sense no i don't um i'm really really just waiting for this um the phoenix police department to do what they need to do i'm trying to be very patient um probably obnoxiously patient before i <laughs> file anything or do anything like that um but you know i've, I've been saying lately that 2020 is the year that I just go crazy and file all the things and I'm like raising money for billboards and I'm just I'm ready to take it to the next level if they don't do anything by the end of this year three billboards outside of Phoenix Arizona yeah pretty much I mean inside Phoenix Arizona for me I want it as close to their offices as I can get and I'm gonna get something as shocking as I can on there to the effect of they know who killed my sister and won't do anything about it we this is that's going to be incredible. We look forward to to contributing yeah. and helping and seeing this this campaign. Yeah, we got your backs on that one. Oh, thank you. And like honestly, I hate asking people for money because there's no reason I should have to raise five thousand dollars for billboards. There's no reason anyone should have ever had to give me a single dollar, a single cent for this case. Like to me, it's absolutely insane, and I feel terrible. But it's it's where I'm at. Like I need help. It's absolutely senseless, and it feels like it's an uphill battle against an entire system. Really. That, that should be totally out for you, and there's more than enough, I think. I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I think there's more than enough to present some sort of case. I think people in our society are just really getting sick of injustices, to be honest. I mean, it, they're becoming so blatant, and it's the same thing with your case. When you look at everything, just in a straight line, the conclusion draws itself, and it's interesting that all you did is go to him. It's his response which made you start to come around. His response of being defensive and not at all coming from a place of love or care Compassion or anything. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he doesn't love his children, and I could sense a very long time back. I mean, you don't do the things you did to any of your children if you love them, um, which is why I don't think he'll ever confess. You know, he loves himself more than he loves anyone else on this planet. So I think, you know, if I had the opportunity to go to his deathbed, which I don't know that I would, I'm not sure my brothers would even tell me, to be honest. But if I did, I think I would go there and he would, like, do some type of last cruel thing. Like, he'd be like, come, come to me, Sarah. And then he'd say, like, I didn't do it and then die. Um, because that's just the type of person he is. Is he in good health at this point in time? You know, he is. I was told, I think about a year ago, that he had um, a physical test in which the doctor said that he was as healthy as a 45-year-old, and he's 71. Wow, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, it's a damn shame. But it does give me more time to get the prosecution before he dies, so I am thankful for that. And I think that's that's ultimately what you want. Now, you said even even on his hypothetical deathbed, he wouldn't admit it. Do you, do you think he believes what he says, everything between the unions and Alyssa? And, and do you think he believes what he's putting out there? You know, I used to until him twice and heard what he had to say about it. He knows exactly what he did. And I, I mean, as far as the union, 
I think he knows a certain set of things happened in the past, you know, in the 80s, 70s, whatever. Um, but I think he knows that it's all crap and that it's all an excuse just to blame Alyssa's death on them and give him a scapegoat and give him a reason to do this really, really vindictive act that would make him feel better and make him feel cool and like some type of superhero. Because even in his manifesto, he, can, he says that he's going to commit suicide. But we know that he wasn't. He was found with an alternative identification. He was found with multiple disguises. His plan was to leave. He was never, ever going to kill himself. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it just kind of all comes back to image and ego. And um, he, he knows. And he thinks that he's a crazy mastermind. And, you know, to be honest, at this point, he's getting away with it. So I don't blame him for feeling that sure. way. So we have to say to the Phoenix Police Department to pretty much get your act together and get the ball rolling on this thing because there's time but not much. Yes. Um, I mean, as well as the state of Arizona, you know, the district attorney's office needs to prosecute. It needs to be a joint effort in which they come together to do what they said they were going to do years ago. I think since... Um we've started this podcast and we've been looking at various cases of uh, historical, local and, and personal like yours. And, um, one, I feel like I can say one thing that's like factual is that men who are in certain positions of power and are used to that throughout their entire lives and aren't questioned. They're able to get away with things. They, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I it mean, seems. so to say, uh, he reacts to things from an emotional place. So like you said, he kind of maybe started out as one thing and at this point is just defensively doubling down. Um, right. Yeah, people explode and maybe do things that they don't mean to, but it's it's how you act afterwards if you're going to do something like that. And he hasn't done one thing right. No, nothing. Well, Sarah, we want to thank you again for um, for sharing the story, and um, we want to congratulate you on your own podcast, Voices for Justice. Oh, yeah. No, thank you, and thank you for having me on. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Any last words you wanted to maybe plug your own podcast? Oh, you're so sweet. I, I suppose I should, right? That's I'm just learning how to be a podcaster, so yeah, please so listen are we. to Voices. For, <laughs> you get it. Um, well, please listen to Voices for Justice. I have new episodes coming soon and on a regular schedule. Um, it's going to be crazy. It's a full-on investigation, and there's so many things I didn't know. Um, and just I want to thank everybody for sticking with Alyssa's story. I know it's been a long time, and I've dangled a case update that I can't share. And I appreciate everyone for believing in me and sticking with me and sharing Alyssa's story and helping me get to the point to where the police email me and say, it's too much media. Um, so we're doing our jobs. We're doing it right. So thank you guys. Thank you again, Sarah. And we'll, uh, we'll be in touch soon. Take it easy. Thanks again, sir. Awesome. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was Sarah Turney telling, uh, everything. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. And, um, yeah, thanks for, for sticking with us, guys. We know it's it's been a long summer, and we haven't been pumping it out like we were earlier, but, you know, we're back on track. By the time you're hearing this, it'll be, you know, getting chilly. The leaves will be changing, 
and uh, everybody will be probably getting ready for Halloween. So we're glad you're sticking with us. Yeah, and if uh, you have any information on any missing case regarding any kids, I just want to throw this number out there. 1-800-THE-LOST. That is the direct line to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. That is 1-800-THE-LOST, or you can just go through their website. If you have any information regarding any case, this one or otherwise, please just contact them. Contact them. Donate if you can. The littlest bit helps. And any any bit of information helps in, in whatever case you may be involved in at home. Yeah. Um, there's thousands of kids that go missing every single day across this country and across the world. Everybody should play, you know, in trying to help a, a missing kid mm-hmm. and that family. So with that, we thank you again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Until then, stay safe, watch your back, because... Hey, evil could be anywhere. Could even be your dad. Hey. Thanks again for listening, and thanks if you keep listening. Again, you can reach us at a darktailpodcast at gmail.com, and Twitter handle is at a darktailpod. Same goes for Instagram. You can reach us on any of those. Contact us if you have a case you'd like us to cover, or contact us if you hate us. That works too. Thanks for listening. <laughs>